start in verse 8. Please follow along as I read. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him and his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own. One thing I do Forgetting what lies behind, turning forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now those of us who are mature think this way. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, with a mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crowned, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. All right, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together tonight. Pray that you would sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, show us wonderful things about yourself. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. When I was in high school, I was a pretty good runner. Not a great runner, but a good runner. And uh, my 11th grade year, uh, I was running indoor track. Indoor track was great because most schools didn't have them, so you could sort of just show up and run on Saturdays and feel pretty good about yourself because it wasn't a full competition. And uh, it was a district meet, and I was running the 1,000 meters. I hadn't run in four months at all. Seriously, I hadn't run in four months. I'd qualified in December. It was March. And yet I was reasonably confident I would do pretty well. And uh, the gun goes off. I run the 1,000 meters, which is a terrible, boring, horrible race. And uh, three laps into the race, kid you not, I have a 100-yard lead on the field in 1,000 meters. I am, am one-tenth of the race ahead of everyone. A quarter into the race, 48 percent into the race. Now, again, the thousand meters is a terribly boring race, especially in indoor track because it's a short track. You run like eight laps or twelve laps. I don't know. It's just terrible monotony, and no one cares except for the people running. They barely care. They just want to finish. <laughs> so it was surprising to me when, at the last lap, when you cross the line to the beginning of the last lap, they ring the bell, sort of like the checkered flag, not the checkered flag, but whatever flag it is, you the green flag, the last lap. And, um, and this never happened in any other race I did. They, they ring the bell, and for the 1,000 meters, the crowd goes crazy. Seriously, the crowd goes crazy. Moms and dads in the stands, athletes on the infield stop what they're doing, and they run to the side of the track and start cheering their teammates. At this point, I do something I know I'm not supposed to do that. I never did it before. It's one of these things as a runner you're never supposed to do, which is look back. And what I see is everyone running together, chasing me down. <laughs> Every single athlete on the track 
and one huge horde steadily gaining on me. <laughs> and I know there's a, there's a distinct possibility I can go from first to last in the last lap and lose in humiliating fashion. I won that race. I did. I beat everyone by about a second or less. And yet, uh, I took no pride or glory in that race. Um, for one, I don't mean to sound prideful, but they were a bunch of scrubs. Um, no, seriously. And I can say this in this way. You can, win, you can win a race and not run well. And that's what I did that day. I didn't run the race well strategically, for sure. I didn't run a good race because I knew I was capable of. And my time was way off a reasonable time for myself. And I almost got beat by a bunch of scrubs. And that's not meaning them. Maybe that was the best race of their life. But for me, winning was not a reasonable goal. I should have had a time in mind. I got nowhere near it. And it's, it's certainly true in our lives as well that we can appear to run well, win well, do well, and still not be running the kind of race we're called to run. Uh, we often run the race of life poorly. Paul's going to talk about this because we don't have a clear goal or we have the wrong goal or we forget the goal. Uh, and we can do this even though we're looking good while doing it. Good form, dressed nicely, might be running with some friends, and all the while uh, not be running in a particularly right manner. Uh, and this is not the way God would have us live. And the, the point I want to make tonight is we do have a race to run. Speaking especially to the Christians in the room, if you're not a Christian and you're not sure what you are, this is sort of a conversation where you, I'm inviting you to eavesdrop. This is the way Christians should live. So if, if you have a hint sometimes as you're living with Christians and you're like, they shouldn't live this way. Well, yes, you're probably right. They probably shouldn't live that way. But I also want you to see that the beauty of the life that we're called to, uh, even though it's hard, so that someone won't sell you a fake bill of goods at some point in the future, uh, it's vital that we know where to start and what the goal is and how we're supposed to run if we're going to run well. Tonight we're going to see that because Christ gets us and glorifies us, we must pursue him. Because Christ gets and glorifies us, we must pursue him. Talk about the goal. We're going to talk about the race. We're going to talk about the glory. And Paul's goal here in our text is to know Christ. In verse 12, as you start reading, it might seem that his goal is perfection. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And there's a sense in which you can read this and reasonably come to that conclusion. Uh, Paul, after all, is sick of himself. Not just in this text. If you read carefully, there's some frustration that he's not what he's supposed to be. In another text, he's, uh, he's not very fond of himself. He, he doesn't have a bad self-esteem problem. He just knows himself. And he's ready to be what he's supposed to be. Um, so he does long to be right. He longs for Christ to make everything that's wrong in him right. And yet it's not ultimately perfection that he wants. It's more personal than he wants a relationship. Yep. And uh, there we go. Uh, what he wants is to know Christ. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, become like him in his death. He wants to know Christ. If you get one more slide, there's Look at that. Good job. Um, to his goal is to know Christ. And there's a sense in which he already does, but not yet like he should. There's an already not yet sense to this reality. He already knows Christ. Or rather, what's really clear is, Christ already knows him. Verse 12, 
Um, where is it here? I've already obtained this. No, I haven't. Or already made perfect. I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. He's saying, I really want to know Christ, but I haven't really achieved it. But Christ has me. He's made me his own. He's drawn me near. He knows me perfectly well. I am his, or as we would say in the South, he got me. I'm gotten. Christ has got him and knows him perfectly well. There's a sense in which Paul is already in a relationship with Christ. And it's a vital relationship. It's a real one. Christ knows him perfectly well. And yet he does not yet know him as he should. He does not know Christ as he should. And that's what he says in verses 10 and 12 and 13. Verses 10, he says, I don't, I'm not yet like him in his death. I'm not yet resurrected from the dead. I don't yet know him as I should. Verse 12, I've not yet obtained it. I'm not yet perfect. I'm not yet complete. I've not yet made it my own. If Paul sounds discontent, it's because he's discontent. This is like, for Paul, someone who's perpetually engaged but never married. Like, this close. Wants it so bad. Still can't have it yet. And he wants to know Christ. That's the goal. He wants to be intimate with him, to know him perfectly well. He knows Christ knows him. All the broken spots and everything else and loves him. He wants to know his lover. He wants to know his God. He wants to know Jesus. And because Christ knows him, because Christ has made him his own, uh, therefore he strives to obtain it. He runs the race. And we see this described in verses 12 and following. And what he does is he runs this race hard. He runs the race hard. In verses 12 and 16 and following, we see concentrated effort. Verse 12, I press on. Verse 13, forgetting what's behind, strain forward. Sounds painful. It is painful. Verse 14, I press on. If this is a race, it's not an easy one. This is not the free willy fun run. Uh, this is a hard, long race with obstacles and hills, and it's difficult. Does this sound easy to you? It shouldn't. And that's hard for some of us, uh, especially of us that grew up in the church and call ourselves Christians. We have a, if we have a pretty good sense of what Christ did for us, which is Christ did everything for me. He died for me. He forgave me. Gave me his righteousness. Therefore, therefore, therefore I can enjoy it, right? I don't have to do anything. Paul says, because Christ has done all those things for me, because he loves me so much, because he knows me perfectly well, I press. I strive. I pursue. Because I want him. So he runs hard, and he runs well. That's what we see in verses 17 and 19. Again, concentrated effort. There's, what we have here is two models, two examples. In verse 17 he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Now some of you are reading that and saying, Man, what an arrogant jerk. Uh, not really. Chapter 2, he said, imitate Jesus. Then he said, imitate Timothy. Then he said, imitate Epaphroditus. And now he's saying, last of all, you can, you can imitate me too. And he's not saying, children, imitate me. He's not saying, peons, minions, follow my example. <laughs> Brothers, I'm down here on your level. Follow my example. Learn from me. And if you don't watch me, then watch others. Follow the example of others. Uh, as well. And what he's talking about is behavior, uh, conduct, character, the choices he makes or that we make. And he goes on in 18 and 19 and says, because it's, it's clear to him, 
and the Philippians probably know who these people are, that there are other people in their community, people that claim to be Christians, whose conduct is uh, wholly contradictory to what they claim. These are people that claim to be Christians whose conduct proves, verse 18, that they're enemies of the cross. Now, now Paul would make a big deal if he was just talking about normal non-Christians. Paul expects persecution. He's in jail in Rome right now. He hasn't said a bad word about anyone in Rome. Nothing. Not about his oppressors, not about Caesar, not about the jailers. He's talking about people here that claim to be Christians that are coming to the Philippians and others and saying, you can sort of do whatever you want, right? And he, what he says is, uh, their God's their belly. They're in destruction. They glory in their shame. They give full vent to their impulses and urges. If their if they're glands and hormones say do it, they do it. Um, if it's shameful, they don't hide it or repent of it. Instead, they run to post it on Facebook as fast as possible. Except for mom. Mom can't see it. Sorry, mom, defending you. Can't see that picture. Um, and Paul says their end, despite what they think, with their confession of Christ, they're in this destruction. They're on a path that runs downhill, and it's an easy, sloping, fun run uh, to destruction. And, and Paul is begging. He does this with tears in his eyes. Guys, listen. I know the race that I'm calling you to run is hard. And I know it doesn't look very fun either, especially compared to that race. And those people are telling you, I'm a Christian and we do this all the time. He's saying, please don't follow them. Uh, Because the heart of the folks in verse 18 and 19 is their self. Following on chapter 2, we see that the heart of a Christian should be to follow the example of Jesus, who did not hold on to his own glory. He did not demand his own rights. Instead, because he loved people, loved his people, came all the way down, humbled himself, became a servant, loved us so much that he entered into the sufferings of others. In other words, Christ loved God and others more than he loved himself. Christians are called to do the same. These folks in 18 and 19, they love themselves really well. And they give themselves whatever they want. And Paul's saying, that is not the fruit of a Christian. And you should not follow their example. So, um, you can't consistently live this way. And I hate to say this on a college campus. Not because I care what you think about me. I hate to say this because you might misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, I know you drink. I know you party. I know you have fun. I'm not saying you can't or shouldn't do some of those things sometimes. Um, Within the laws of land and um, within certain moral limits. Uh, what What I don't want you to hear me say is, you cannot perform, if you don't perform well enough, God won't love you. That's not what I'm saying. That's not Christianity. What I am saying is, if you claim to be a Christian and to know Jesus, you cannot consistently live this way. I didn't say that. That's what Paul says. Because it's fundamentally self-centered. And destructive. And some of you may be saying, well, man, that sucks. I'm missing out on all the fun. And that sounds hard, and it sounds lonely. Well, maybe. But actually, you don't have to run this race, Paul says. You don't have to run this race alone. And by the way, I didn't say you could never drink or party. I just said you can't do it. That's a way that you destroy yourselves. Um, 
what we have here also is a run, uh, an invitation to run this race, which sounds hard, which sounds like you're missing out on a lot of but it's actually an invitation to run with others, to run together. Brothers, join, join together in imitating me and follow. This is not a race that you should ever feel like you're running alone. In fact, you should never run it alone. I ran and ran for years, and I hated it. I, I still hate running. I will never start running again unless other people want to run with me, and even then I'm not sure I would do it. The only reason I liked to run was, one, I could beat other people, <laughs> i.e., I was a prideful, arrogant jerk. And really liked competition. Um, but frankly, I didn't win enough to justify my running. Uh, it's because I enjoyed the camaraderie of running with others. Like, this race is hard, but like all kinds of hard things. You crew folks, we talked about this earlier. If you were in the boat by yourself, you probably wouldn't do it. Maybe. You have to really love suffering to do it then. <laughs> it, it's the camaraderie of doing it together. It's the joy of shared experience. It's the encouragement of, I'm exhausted. There was this guy, I forgot his name. It makes, it makes me feel terrible. I forgot his name. He wasn't even a runner, but he was a guy that came out to our track meets and took a vested interest in me. He was 50 years old, African-American with an afro, with a Gucci bag and a big gold chain. <laughs> I don't know how he knew me. He came to every race I ran for two years. And he was my personal cheerleader. I ran cross country where you ran like 800 yards out in the woods. You're like half a mile from everyone. And I would hear his voice. Now, it's funny. And at times it was really frustrating. Because that man was in my head. But it was this. It was great. He was with me, encouraging me. And that's the way it should be. We should run this thing together. This, friends, if you're an RUF, this is why we have small groups. It's not for you to learn more stuff. Learning stuff's good. Some of you learn better in small groups than large groups. That's great. It's so that you will learn together and share together and pray together and grow together and be together. There should be a togetherness about the Christian life as you run this thing together. Even then, with the togetherness, you still may ask, and this is a long run. This thing goes on forever, till I die. Yep. How can I keep going? You keep going when you're reminded of the glory. When you're reminded of the glory. So we have the goal, we have the race, and last we have the glory. And the glory is, of one sense, it's the homecoming, verse 20. Our citizenship, it's in heaven. In other words, when we cross the finish line of the Christian life, the ticker tape parade that awaits us, the reception is that of heaven. It's a homecoming. Uh, it's a homecoming that's sort of weird because Paul says, you're already citizens of heaven. You see that? It doesn't say like, you run the race, cross the line, and then you become a citizen of heaven. He's saying, our citizenship right now, as we run the race, is in heaven. Right now, you're a citizen of something you're not even in yet. And you should ask yourself, how is that? I haven't even finished the race yet. And we talked about this last week. We talked about the idea of union with Christ. Uh, you have finished the race, in a sense. You finished it when Christ finished it for you. He ran the race perfectly 
the only one to ever run the race perfectly, won the race. And in him, you have, in a sense, finished the race. Such that everything, if, you're, if you trust Jesus, everything that Jesus has is yours. His righteousness, his sonship, his inheritance, even his citizenship. So you run the race today in the midst of this world, in the midst of this university, as a citizen of heaven. That should give you tremendous confidence. It really will. It should give you tremendous confidence. I belong in this race. <laughs> I own this race. It should also give you a sense of responsibility. Right? I've talked to some of you about this. You know, you're in organizations that you feel like you have to represent. you got to represent. I mean, you're a citizen of heaven running this race. You're called to represent. You know, the Under Armour, we must protect this house. Act like you've been there. All the cliches. They're all true. Uh, if you're a citizen of heaven... If you know Jesus, you're called to live this Christian life like someone that really believes it. Like someone that belongs to another kingdom that has all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of that kingdom. So, this is good news. And it should change you. This idea that we experience glory now. That's what this is. This idea that we're citizens of heaven now, even though we're right here in the middle of 2012, in a presidential election, in a messy world. It's very earthy. We're right here. This idea that we're experiencing heaven right now, in a sense, it's weird, but it should change you a little bit. Uh, a silly illustration that a friend of mine passed, but I think it's good. When we understand heaven, it's like Alka-Seltzer dropping into a glass of water. It starts as just water. Then it gets fizzy. Then it turns into medicine. And once heaven drops into us, it begins to change us. And this is the idea here, that as citizens of heaven, God is already bringing the reality of heaven into the lives of his people. It begins to change us. We should run differently, representing him, acting like we've been there, running confident and responsibly. But also, the glory, not just of that, but of his coming. Not just our coming home, but of his coming. Verse 20 and 21. Citizenship's in heaven, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We want the glory. We really do. We all want glory. We want glory in a couple of ways. One, we want to be recognized. But two, we want glory in the sense that if any of us, including folks here that might not be Christians, when you think of heaven or glory, what you're thinking about is the absence of pain, the restoration of what's wrong, peace, justice, we all want that. We do. We want all the broken places fixed, all the wrong things undone. And that's this. When Christ comes, by the power that he has, by virtue of his resurrection, turning death on its head, coming out the other side, Jesus will make all things right. By virtue of that, by virtue of that power, that glory which we want, we have it in him. And we are running... To him. The picture here is that we're running to him and he is running toward us. From it, our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus, who is coming toward us. Some of us are running very hard to be perfect. We're running the race, all the while terribly conscious 
of the whole world watching, when in fact they're really not paying that much attention. Uh, and we're trying to look perfect, be perfect, build the resume last week, trying to fix ourselves on the fly while we're running. Maybe in the back of our minds thinking, I have to fix myself before I actually get to Jesus. And also try to have as much fun along the race course as I can before I get to Jesus. And what you need to see here is, you're running to one who in his power and love has pledged to make you perfect. You're trying to be perfect for him. But frankly, it's his perfection, his glory, his power, that when you cross the finish line, when you run the race well, will envelop you in its arms, perfect you, glorify you, give you the glory and the perfection and the love that you long for. So the Christian life, summary, it's meant to be lived with a certain kind of confidence. It's the confidence that you're on the right course. Okay? The right course. And the course is between a finish line and an end line. The finish line is Christ has you. He takes you. He justifies you. He makes you his own. That's the beginning of the race. The beginning of the race is not, I've decided I'm going to live a good life to make God happy. No, no, no. That's, you're on the wrong course already. The beginning of the race is Christ has me. I've trusted in him. He's forgiven me. He's made me his own. He knows me. Now I'm going to run for him. That's the beginning of the race. The end of the race is he will come and fix everything and perfectly transform me into his image and make everything that is wrong about me and shameful about me or everything wrong that's ever happened to me, he will fix those things forever. We run the, we run the race between one point and the other. And knowing that course should allow us to run with all confidence and perseverance and joy. We run for someone who gave his life for us. We run for one who loves us so much he's coming back for us to fix everything. As a Christian, if that does not define your goal or inform the way you live your life, you're missing something. As a non-Christian here, if that does not describe the way you think about Christianity, I would uh, strongly suggest you talk to me or someone to get a more accurate understanding of what Christianity is. This is what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Hard, yes. Joyful, yes. Lived with purpose, yes. With a goal, yes. Longing for glory, yes. Confident in Christ, yes. Marked by a selflessness and love for others because Christ has me, yes. It's a story that I've heard often, and I'm not sure it's true, but I really hope it's true, because it's a great story, um, that Leonardo da Vinci in his painting of The Last Supper. Uh, it took some three years. He intended it to be his masterpiece. And uh, after three years of laboring on it, he brought in a, a trusted confidant whose, uh, whose eye for fine art he trusted and wanted to know what he thought about it before he uh, unveiled it to the public. Now, if you're familiar with the picture of The Last Supper, it's a picture of Christ with his men uh, before his death, before the cross. He's standing at the table with his arms outstretched with his men around him doing various things. Uh, as his friend looks at the cup, looks at the picture, he, uh, he begins to heap praises on the picture and says, uh, the cup in particular, the cup in Christ's hand, it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's exactly the way it should be. At which point, uh, Da Vinci, disappointed, grabs a brush and begins to erase the cup. This friend, exasperated, says, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Da Vinci says, nothing. Nothing should detract from the glory of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, that should define 
your life. It really should. I know all of you have lots of goals. It's nothing wrong with having lots of goals. If you don't have goals, why are you here? <laughs> Go home do something else. <clears throat> but if you're a Christian, one of your chief goals, as Paul says in Philippians 3, is to have the valuable, surpassing worth of Jesus. Why did you get into this otherwise? If his love for you and his grace toward you is of not is not of incomparable value, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? I don't suggest you give up. I suggest you take another look. Look what he's done for you. Isn't he the most beautiful, glorious, wonderful thing in the world? Isn't he in his desire to set everything right, the most righteous, just, and perfect thing in the world? This is what the Christian life is supposed to be about. This is why you should run strongly, fervently, run well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for 